0: If you have a Bible with you this morning, please open it to Romans chapter 15. We'll be reading through the first 13 verses of that chapter this morning. If you don't have a Bible, please find one in the pocket of the pew in front of you, uh, and we will gladly be reading from the same version. This morning we gather not just to show our unity with one another. We certainly do that. This is the time in which we gather together to show that we are unified as the people of God. This is the the time that is most important in that dedication and in that showing of our unity together. There is no other time like this. We have other times which are useful and beneficial for the people of God. We have prayer meetings. We have community groups. And we would implore you to be part of those things. Dump yourself into those things, Can, can uh, make it a priority in your life to be part of those things for your own good. But this is a special time when we gather together in order to declare that we are unified in the Lord Jesus Christ by his word. But we also then recognize that we are not just gathering together. We are gathering even as we have prayed today for other churches, that there are other people who are gathering together. That our unity in Christ goes beyond simply these four walls, although this might be a special demonstration of it. We know that we are unified not just to our own people in this church, but we have sister churches that we partner with in the gospel to send out missionaries and to plant other churches with. We know even larger than that, that we are not just bound by a common confession with other churches, but we are, com- we are uh, in partnership with the church universal not just the church locally or Southern Baptist churches, but also with all the members of all the churches through all the years who have rightly confessed and believed in the Lord Jesus Christ. We partner with other churches so that we could complete the work of God in a way that we could simply not do on our own. Right now, the SBC has 3,500 missionaries on the mission field. It is the largest missionary sending agency in the world. We are proud to back that and to help fund that. Many of these are people who go to difficult places. They do not seek to go, as Paul would say, where the Lord has been named, but we send them specifically where the Lord has not been named, that they might help to proclaim the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to all who are lost. We celebrated that even this year. We had our on-mission celebration And in this very church on Sunday night, we brought in a doctor who works in North Africa who couldn't even share with us her real name for fear or even the real place where she worked online, lest she be found out as a missionary and not be allowed to return to her country. These are important things that we do and important partnerships that we have. So it is good to remember that we're part of a larger church than just Crossway. It is true, we must be unified together. We've been talking about those things but we are unified beyond just our brothers and sisters in this church to things that are going on, to missions within the Southern Baptist Convention, and beyond that to the universal church of all believers. So what Paul says here to the church about unity, about living together in harmony, he applies not just between you and your brothers and sisters within this congregation, but he means to apply between Crossway and other sister churches as well. We are not to stand on your opinion, but on the word of God. The strong are to bend for the weak in Christ, and we are to stand firm on the things that God has commanded. Paul has said much already in chapter 14 about how the Romans and about how the Roman Christians are to handle themselves amidst these diverse opinions. Today, I think what he desires to do is paint for them a larger picture of how and why they must live So let us read the first 13 verses of Romans 15 and see this for ourselves. Begin reading with me in verse 1. There Paul writes, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but, as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you... And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will come, even he who arises to rule the Gentiles, in him will the Gentiles hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. This is God's inerrant and infallible word to us. This morning, as we consider what Paul instructs the believers in Rome here, the first thing I would like to put before you is that we need to live like Christ for the glory of God. We need to live like Christ for the glory of God. Paul begins by restating to us the thing that he said to us back in chapter 13, verse 8, that we have an obligation. He says, we who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak, This obligation, back in verse 8 of chapter 13, was rooted in love, that we are to love our neighbors as ourselves and the strong here are called upon to love the weak by bending for them, by submitting themselves to the needs of those who are weak. You are to, not to put up with, not, not to simply listen to them grumble and complain, not simply to to act like you're Moses listening to the people of Israel as they wander through the, the wilderness, grumbling and complaining, saying, I wish we could go back to Egypt. I wish we could go back where we had food. I wish we didn't have to rely on God or things like that. No, you're not putting up with people, but you're bearing their problems. You're bearing their burdens. You'll notice that this admonition is to the strong. Something has to give here. Something has to change. If the people of God are going to be gathered together, if they're going to share meals with one another, if they're going to have fellowship with one another, they can't do it so long as the the strong eat food that the weak despise. And so Paul looks at them and he, he doesn't say, listen, what you need to do is change your opinions on this thing. He doesn't look at the weak and say, listen, weak, you are wrong. Which, by the way, he clearly thinks they're wrong. But nevertheless, he doesn't say, you need to change your opinions on this. Strong, what you need to do is you need to sit them down, give them a good lecture in Christology, and hope that they change their opinion on this thing. Paul isn't interested in changing anyone's opinion. What Paul is interested in is changing action. And so he looks at the strong and he says, you might be right in your opinion, but you handle yourself differently. You are to make sure that you are the one who bends for the weak. That you are the one who changes for the weak. Change what you do. You are to bear with their failings. You are to bear with their weaknesses. It's not that much different than the way that God talks about strength in other ways. Here, the strength is clearly a strength in faith. The weak are weaker in faith. The strong here are stronger in faith. They, They have a more true, a more real sense of the faith that they are to have in Jesus Christ and what he has done for them. God talks about this in other ways. That those who have things like economic strength are to watch out for those who don't have economic strength. That God sometimes gives some people more wealth than other people, precisely so that those people who have more wealth can help those who don't. This was written into the Old Testament law, which is why those who had fields were not to glean them all the way to the edges, but were to leave them so that the poor could take from Even in the book of Acts, people who had possessions continually brought them to the church, gave them over to the apostles so that the apostles when they found a need could hand over and help those who were in need because of the giving and the generosity of those who already had enough that economic strength there's physical strength but nevertheless here it is strength in faith if you are strong in the faith you are not to expect that the weak bend themselves for you the strong are to bend themselves for the weak The prime example of all of this, as Paul tells us, is nothing less than Jesus. To show this, he quotes Psalm 69 directly from David. Psalm 69, David pictures himself as though he's standing on a sort of a muddy bank of a river and his feet have sunk down into the mud and he he can't get a foothold. He can't step out and he hears the water coming and he feels the water running up his legs and he knows that river, which is going to flood, is coming up to his neck and he's about to drown. River is clearly a metaphor for how he feels. He feels like he is drowning because of the insults, because of the, the physical violence that is given over to him by his brothers in the Lord. They were Israelites. They were friends. They have turned their back on him. But David understands well, as the anointed one of God, why they are doing this. They're not daring to reach up to heaven to insult God. They're not daring to try and reach up to heaven to commit violence against him. So what they do is they find the image of God here on earth and strike out against it. There is no better image of God than the king of Israel. So they they strike out and they lash at David, which is why David says, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He was nothing but a proxy for God. And in their anger and their hatred of God, they lashed out on him, which is no different than what happens with Jesus on the cross. The Jews know better than to reproach God. But they feel like they can reproach the image of God as they see it in Jesus. They feel like they can commit physical violence against him. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. Jesus stands and takes their reproaches. He takes their mocking and he takes their insults. He does it precisely because it is better to be insulted by people and complete the very will of God to do what God had sent him to do. It was better, better than to seek vengeance. It was better to do that and allow those insults and that mockery to happen, allow the physical violence to happen against him than to seek vengeance and not complete the will of God. The glory of God is worth giving up privileges and rights for, which is precisely what Paul is calling on the strong to do. Yes, you can eat. And yes, you can drink. You're perfectly within your rights to do that. Give them up. Give him up for the sake of the weak. Give him up for the sake of love of your neighbor. Jesus was indeed strong in the faith. And because he was strong, he suffered for those who were weaker in faith. Those who would look at God and think we could insult him. You and I, who are belligerent before God, shake our fist at him, denying his commands. Do what we want to do. Stand as our own authority before God, before we are saved and brought to submission by the Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, Paul says, we ought to live like him. We give up good things so that we might gain better things. If drinking causes problems, give it up. If eating certain things causes problems, give them up. If your opinions Which are just opinions, cause friction. If they tear others down, if they cause division or harm the weak, let go of them and show strength by committing yourself to never, ever putting a stumbling block before a weaker brother again. While Paul calls the strong to this kind of living, he knows quite well that isn't easy. Just because you're strong doesn't mean the burden that you're called on to bear will be light. It's hard. So he goes on in verse 4 and he talks about the very verse that he quoted. He says, For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction. It wasn't written for David. It wasn't even written so that Jesus would look at it and be like, oh, I guess that's what's going to happen to me. Paul says, that wasn't written for David. It wasn't written for Jesus. It was written for us, friend. It was written for you. It was written for you so that you can look at it and say, that's exactly what we should do we should sacrifice for others out of love. So it's instruction for us. But that instruction has a purpose, that through endurance and through encouragement, we might have hope. It's a strange thing, that sort of, you're going to endure, and therefore you're going to get hope. Paul said pretty much the same thing back in chapter 5, verses 3 through 5. It's a strange thing, we would think that not enduring would give us hope. That when there's obstacles or difficulties in our path, if God would like unceremoniously come down and just kind of like wipe them away and get rid of all of the difficulties in our life, when there are mountains in our way and God simply removes them with the power of his word, we think that that is what would build up hope. But Paul continually puts before us that it is precisely the opposite. It is enduring that gives us hope. It is enduring suffering and hardship and difficulty that shows us that our faith is real. It's not a make-believe faith. It's not something that we are simply saying, but we're not living out. The very fact that we are willing to endure for others out of love for Jesus Christ and his people demonstrates to us that our hope is real in Jesus Christ. And it affirms that hope. But it isn't just endurance. It's also through the encouragement of the scriptures The scripture itself is written to help us be encouraged. We hear stories of men and women in scripture throughout the time of scripture, standing firm in what they believe, even as they suffer, even as violence is done to them and to the ones that they love, standing sure that God will one day Have vengeance on those who are his enemies. Sure that God will one day make his promises true in all the ways. We've read already Psalm 16. Beautiful psalm. David says, Your holy one will not see corruption. He doesn't fear death because God will not leave him in the grave. Even as that is more appropriately said of Jesus Christ, David has put his hope in the fact that the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob will one day bring all of his people back from the dead. So what are we giving up, really? What is here on earth that Paul is honestly asking you to abstain from that you will not get back more in heaven? What earthly pleasures will not heaven and the Lord Jesus Christ show to be frail and weak once we enter into his kingdom? What good will God not only withhold from you, but not give back to you in full? As we read from that same psalm, in his right hand are pleasures forevermore. So give up these sort of fleeting and dim pleasures of the world. Give up your opinions Give up these things that just don't matter much and allow yourself to submit to the needs of brothers and sisters. And in that process, you glorify God by acting like the Lord Jesus Christ. Secondly, let us live in unity for the glory of God. Let us live in unity for the glory of God. We sometimes hear in Countries, not just our own, but in other countries, of strange voting results. We hear in North Korea that they're something of a republic and a democracy. People show up. 100% voter turnout for the Kims. Again, they win. 100% turnout. 100% voting for Kim Jong-un. That's a huge surprise. You would have thought somebody would have sneaked in there. Somebody would have like, written in their niece or nephew or something like that. But no, 100%. We hear that and we think, that's... That's bogus, right? They're missing some information. I would have thought that the guy who was keeping them separated from the rest of the world in an abject poverty wouldn't be so popular, but apparently we're wrong. Like, we know that there's something wrong going on there. Back in the 90s, Uzbekistan was was ruled over by two men, second of which got 97% of the votes. And he was worse off than his predecessor, who got 99% of the votes. And you hear things like that, and you're like, that's almost every single person who voted, which is crazy. How does that happen? Well, we know it happens because the elections are rigged, men are wicked, and they force people to vote certain ways. What Paul is never asking is for our unity to be based on unanimity. That somehow, every single one of us has to agree on every single thing. Complete agreement seems far-fetched and wrong. He's not telling us to change our opinions, but again, he's asking for us to change our actions. After all, how are we ever supposed to function together? If you and I have a different picture of where the church is going to go in the future, if you and I have a different picture of how we get there, even if we share a vision for what the future of Crossway might look like, of what we're gonna do in missions and how we're going to look here on the ground, Even if we have the exact same picture in our head of what that looks like, there's no guarantee that you and I are going to agree on how we're going to get there. How are we going to budget for it? I think that money should be spent here, here, and here. And you think, well, that's not as big of a priority for me. I think we need to put money into this or we need to do this. There's, There's a number of different ways in which you and I are going to split our opinions. We're not going to see eye to eye. We're not going to to ever agree in complete unanimity with one another. Not only that, Paul knows that that's just not likely here. He's not asking for it. But he understands that unity is still possible. The ESV uses a word that I think is brilliant, even though I don't fully agree with the translation. Nevertheless, I do like the word being present here because I think it provides a very nice metaphor for us. And that is that word, harmony. It says you should live in harmony with one another. Harmony is not melody. It is not the tune. We can all sing the melody and we can sing monotonously the exact same notes at the exact same time. And Paul says we don't need that. The best music always uses harmony. Harmony. Harmony takes monotony out of the music. It provides brightness and beauty, affirms brilliance of the composer, not by everyone and everything doing the same notes, but by using different notes that highlight, that work together. We don't need to just sing monotonously together, but we must sing in harmony with what God has composed in his word. We don't just sing in voice, but in the music of our own lives Different notes working together. Different opinions working together. Different ideas working together to bring about the will of God. And in that, Paul says, so we sing with one voice. Not identically, but we're singing the same song. We sing the same tune. We do so, we raise a joyous noise to the Lord because we're living in the unity of the gospel for the glory of God friends, let's be very clear what our unity cannot possibly be found in. Our unity cannot be found in our appreciation of food and drink. Our unity cannot be found on minor and insignificant theological positions. It is not to be found on every single one of us being at the exact same maturity level as everyone else. And if you're not there, then you being looked down upon. It is not in our all- finding and appreciating the exact same books and the exact same speakers and preachers. It is not and are all having the same exact hobbies or enjoying the same music and movies, even in our own future plans, that we all look and think and act the same. That's not where our unity is. Our unity cannot possibly be found in having the exact same political ideology and how we work out the good things that God has spoken to us It isn't found in our being Americans. It is not found in our opinions. Our unity is found in this. It is found in the hope that through the scriptures God has revealed himself. It is found in the trinity of the Father, Son, and Spirit working seamlessly to bring the good news of Jesus Christ to us into a lost world. It is found in our acknowledgement of ourselves as sinners before God, of God as merciful, of our belief that in his life, death, and resurrection, Christ is ultimately the only hope for our sinful lives. It's found in our understanding that God is always our greatest good. It is found in our belief that following the commands of God is always in our best interest, selfishly being obedient to the word of God because it is good and right and true for us. It's found in our hope that the Lord will return on the clouds upon which he left to reign one day with his saints. It's found in our belief that we are here to serve others and to love our neighbors as ourselves. That is what we are unified on. Now, many of those things can get worked out in many different ways, but those things do not change. God is good. He has been gracious to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are sinful and we're working on it. But let us be unified around those things. Let the external things go. Let your opinions go. Let the minor things go. Major on the majors and follow the Lord. Third, let us live as the fulfillment of the glory of God. Let us live as the fulfillment of the glory of God. Paul begins to list a cantina of passages that are meant to point to the fact that Jesus Christ Has confirmed the promise to the patriarchs for the circumcised in order that, so with the purpose of bringing in the Gentiles by the mercy of God. What is he talking about when he says that? Well, the first thing is a passage that isn't even here. When he talks about the promises given to the patriarchs, it's impossible to think that he's not thinking about Genesis 12 and the promise that he made to Abraham. There, the Lord spoke to Abraham, I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you, I will curse. And in you, all the families, and you should read that, in you, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed. The blessing was to stop the run of the curse. It was to stop the curse of Babel. It was to stop the curse of the flood. It was to stop the curse of Genesis 3. God was saying, I am, I'm distant from sinful people. I will curse sinful people. They will die and they will be scattered and in enmity with themselves and with me forevermore. And then he shows up to Abraham and he says, but not anymore. The promise is that he will bless them, that he will be with them, that he will be their God, that they will be a great nation, that he will bring them in from every tribe, tongue, nation, and language, that through the promise given to Abraham, all of the Gentiles will come in. So Paul shows that what he is saying is true by running through not just Genesis 12, which is the statement of the promise, but the strong belief throughout the rest of the Old Testament that that promise would indeed come true. He begins by listing Psalm 1849, which is a paraphrase of 2 Samuel twenty two fifty. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to your name. This is when the king David... David foreseeing a greater king returning, ruling over the nations. He will, he will be the king who brings the Gentiles in to bow before him. They will, be, they will be ruled by him. He will win wars over them. He will bring over them. He will sing over them in victory. And yet, that victory, that crushing defeat that they will have at the, the feet of this king, will be their salvation. And they will praise you among the Gentiles and sing to God's name. again, it is said, he writes down, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. Deuteronomy 32. That after the exile of the people of God, God will bring his people back. And that bringing back his people from the nations, he will attract not just his people back to him, but also the nations with them. And they too will rejoice with the people of God. Psalm 17, verse 1. Paul could have listed the entire psalm, which is only... Three verses long. Praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and let all the peoples extol Him. In Isaiah eleven ten. The root of Jesse will come; even he who arises to rule the Gentiles. In him will the Gentiles hope. Each of these is looking into the future at a time in which God will send the King of Israel to rule over the nations, not simply to make them come to Him in slavery, but to give them the goodness of the blessing of Abraham. And what Paul is saying is that has come true. So that the very promise that God made to Abraham was cemented and made sure in Jesus Christ, thus opening up the floodgate for the mercy of God to go out even to the Gentiles. This is peace for all people. The passage in Isaiah, the context is important. It's one of those places where famously, the scriptures say that the lion and the lamb will lay down together, that the leopard and the goat Will be as one. These things, were, which were always opposites, always when brought together, were killing one another. We're looking at death with one another. He says, they will be no more. The lion will watch out for the lamb, We'll take care of it. The leopard will no longer strangle the goat and devour it, but will sit by it. It's not just that the nations were to do this with the Jews. Because the nations are varied and multiple. They will do it with one another. Nations and people from different nations who are forever at enmity with one another, who are always fighting against one another and hating one another, well, they will be brought in the Lord Jesus Christ to peace and reconciliation. Therefore, let us live as this fulfillment. I don't mean let us make this to be fulfilled. So, it's not as though what we are to do is to say, God has said this is going to be true. So, what we need to do is we need to go make it be true. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying go and fulfill it. I'm saying live as the fulfillment of this. God is fulfilling this in you. He has brought people from every tribe, tongue, nation, language, he's brought people of differing opinions, he's brought people with different backgrounds. Different focuses in life, different likes, different opinions on on matters big and small. He has brought them together so that they might be at peace with one another. So that those who are strong in the faith might help those who are weaker. The lions might be with the lambs. In the world, the weak are there to serve the strong. The strong oppress. The strong take advantage of. The strong demand. And the weak must give not in the kingdom of God. The strong are there to serve. So they're called upon as lions to serve the lambs. They're called upon as leopards to serve the goats. We are the fulfillment. And God is fulfilling these things in us. God has caused us by his work in Jesus to be unified in the cross of Jesus Christ. So if you think that you've been redeemed by Christ, if you think at any level that Christ has died for our sins, if he has been resurrected for our justification to make us one, if he has switched us and transferred us from a domain of darkness into his marvelous light, if we have indeed been born again, then this is the kind of life that ought to be present among us. We ought to live with the earnest love of our neighbor as part and parcel of who we are. We ought to lay aside our differences and opinions those non-essential things that drive so much dissension and, and disunity within the body of God and cling to the cross and to the commands as the very thing that unify us. And again, in all of these matters, we are not simply talking about the unity that you have with brothers and sisters who sit next to you, but it also is incumbent upon us to make sure that we are unified with people who we might never see, we're unified with people in the Southern Baptist Convention that we partner with to send missionaries overseas so that they might preach the gospel to those who have never heard. Indeed, we are then unified with people all around the world because our missionaries seek to have them plant churches and to help teach and lead them. And so we're unified to them. And Typically, we don't use the pulpit here as a soundboard for going through SBC matters. I don't even think we should be called Southern Baptist churches after all. We're pretty far north. Now, perhaps we're Southern Baptist to the Stevens who have to travel down from basically the UP. They basically live in Canada, so there's a difference there. But for the rest of us, we're hardly Southern, right? We're not Southern. We're maybe called Great Commission Baptists or something like that. But nevertheless, we rarely go into this. But it's important to do it because one, This is precisely the kind of thing that Paul is talking about because he's going to parlay this particular idea into his talking about why it is that that he needs to go to Spain to be naming Christ amongst those who have never heard him. So it it helps to speak of these things. It's not just because of where we are in the text, but it, it also helps to know that the SBC is meeting this week. Monday through Wednesday they will be meeting. The Southern Baptist Convention only truly exists for three days a year. And it's happening this particular year or this particular week. Now, something else has happened that is worthy of our discussion. And that is, this past year, there's been a great deal of dissension and discomfort in the SBC because there is meant to be a look at our executive committee. The executive committee is simply the body that has been elected to basically run the Southern Baptist Convention when it is not together. So again, Southern Baptist Convention only exists for three days a year. The other 362 days, it is the executive committee that executes what the three days worth of meetings by members of Christian churches in the Southern Baptist Convention said that they should do. And so they're the ones who control the funds. They're the ones who kind of make things work. Over 20 years, there have been reports culminating in last year the executive committee wasn't doing all that it should have been doing when it came to preventing and helping sexual abuse victims. Particularly, when it comes to clergy, when it comes to pastors and churches, not only sexually abusing people, knowing that those churches were covering up that abuse, knowing that those pastors, even when they were dismissed, were allowed to leave those churches, and go to other churches where they would then serve as pastors again. The executive committee, knowing this, didn't act. Repeatedly didn't act. If guilty of homosexuality, they would have disfellowshipped with those churches. Guilty of abuse, the executive committee says, well, we we can't do anything. Long report came out. As you would guess, not a lot of good. Two primary reasons why the executive committee, not just the executive committee, men in leadership, men, almost no women, men in leadership, refuse to act. From what I've read, I haven't read the whole thing, but I've read a substantial amount of those hundreds of pages. Two primary reasons why. The first one, the executive committee, the lawyers who happen to serve on the executive committee and the lawyers who represent the executive committee continually hamstrung the executive committee from speaking out about these things over fears that it would open up Southern Baptists to libel and to lawsuit. Because after all, Southern Baptist churches are autonomous. So if you tell this church that this guy is coming to them shouldn't be admitted because he did something wrong in this other church, well, that's going to open you up to libel. That's going to open you up to lawsuits. It's better just to keep quiet. Well, that seems like a pretty horrible reason. But it's straightforwardly the reason why the executive committee continued to act this way. Not only that, they didn't even want the report to come out. They didn't want to give over everything to the third party that was doing the investigation because they were afraid that if they gave them all of the information to this third party, that that would open them to libel. They wanted to keep back information so that they couldn't do a full investigation because their lawyers kept telling them, it's attorney-client privilege. If we let it go, people are going to sue you. Micah. Not our Micah. The Bible's Micah, 6-8. He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? Now, you might have noticed that there is something substantial lacking in those verses It was straightforward. What does God require out of you? Justice, loving kindness, Walking humbly. Pretty straightforward. It's not not complicated. It might be complicated in how it works out, but the instructions are right there. You'll notice, interestingly, that in the Hebrew, in the Septuagint, in the Greek version, in the Syriac, in the Coptic, in every other version, there is nothing mentioned about saying, hey, pursue justice so long as it doesn't put you in a dangerous position financially. Because if it does that, then you really need to just kind of think through it and be prudent about it. Seek justice and do what is good so long as you are not capable of losing financial status. The other reason mentioned, not typically on the level of the executive committee, but on many of these churches, and people were continually told to not come forward. To not make public statements about what happened to them, to keep it in wraps in the church, was think of what would happen to this man's ministry. Very important man. 40,000 Southern Baptist churches. This is a very important man among those churches. Very important man among his state. Very important man in his city. Think of what's going to happen to his ministry. Think of what's going to happen if you, if you speak these things. The idea is that you're going to burn down good work of God. Listen. <laughs> the wickedness and the evil of things like that are just almost unfathomable. Not only not only to say such things, but to have people who can say such things get to a level of prominence among any churches. What are they afraid of? That it's going to burn? Let it burn. Jesus tells us through Paul, there's going to come a day when your work is going to be tested. And if it's fire, hay, and stubble, it's going to light up because that's what fire, hay, and stubble do. They were destined for it. If, if this guy's ministry was to burn because he almost raped somebody, then yeah, let it burn. And that which survives, that which is good, that's what lasts from it. Jesus says you build with precious stone, gold, and silver. It will last. If it's going to burn, let it burn. Don't hinder the truth for stuff like that. So, There are clear commands. We are to protect the weak and vulnerable. We're not to cover it up. We're not to allow people to not only take advantage in one place, but then leave and take advantage in another place. There's no biblical warrant for that. It doesn't fall under church autonomy. That's a lie. It's an evil lie. And it's a dirty lie done by men who seek to protect themselves we are worried about financial loss. Nevertheless, what they're doing is allowing the strong to pray on the weak time and time again, and the weak are losing their faith. They're damning people to hell. So, there are clear commands in Scripture. Let us stand on them. We can have honest disagreements, diverse opinions, really strong disagreements about how we walk forward. We can have strong disagreements in here about what we ought to do on any of a number of things. Not not just about how we handle things like sexual abuse and preventing it, but on the color of the carpet in here. We can have strong disagreements from light things to heavy things. But we are to walk forward in the unity of the blood of Jesus Christ because of what he has done for us. Our opinions, don't matter. Keep the things that are major, major. So what are we unified by? What are we, not unified by together only, but what are we unified by from church to church? Are we unified by money and the desire for financial protection? Are we unified by the images of great men and the stupid edifices that they've built that are sure to burn? No. We are unified by the blood of Jesus Christ, the very currency of heaven, which is able to withstand even the vilest sin and not only clean the sinner, but heal the injured. Remember, Jesus' kingdom does not need our protection. It doesn't need our might. It doesn't need our strength. It doesn't need our wisdom. We need its. So let the kind of unity that we have demonstrate the truth of that reality. Let it demonstrate the very unity that we are to have in the word of God as it commands us how to live. Let us demonstrate that we have heard the Lord and we have chosen wisely. Let's pray. Father, help us to be people of integrity and honor, all the while being people of mercy and kindness. We humans struggle with this balance. Yet we are called by your word to be those things. Help us to stand for what your word says, firm and strong, unwilling to yield or fold over even one jot or tittle of your word. Yet where our opinions dwell, where we make looser connections to your word, I pray that you would give us grace and flexibility and meekness and humility, that our unity may grow even amidst our diversity, and that your gospel might shine as the true means of our being together the glue which holds us together, so that in all things your church may magnify your greatness, shine with your presence, and walk in your light. We ask these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord, for our good and for his glory. Amen.